Hey there, spooky friends. It's Megan. And before we hop into the episode, I want to tell y'all a little bit about what we've got coming up in person next. We're so excited to announce that our friends at Little Cottage Brewing have invited us back for a monthly spot with trivia. So that means it's time to mark your calendars with a few dates to come hang out with us and play along. On December 13th, join us for Creepy Holiday Trivia, where we'll have questions ranging from spooky holiday traditions around the world, mischievous holiday mythical beings, holiday-themed horror movies, and more. Then, on January 17th, join us again for a deck themed around fears and phobias. Last but not least on the calendar is February 14th for a theme of romance and scorned lovers in horror. We can't wait to see you on December 13th, January 17th, and February 14th for some excellent craft beer and a scary good time. Okay, 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 I get it. Now, on to the episode. Hey ghoulies, it's Megan, and it's time to break out your handbook for the recently deceased because we are back with another mini-sode of Clever Ghouls, and today we're talking about Beetlejuice and the bureaucracy of life and death. Beetlejuice is a 1988 American fantasy horror comedy directed by Tim Burton and, surprisingly enough, was only Burton's second feature film. The film is rich in its in-your-face symbolism and serves as a horror comedy critique about the effects capitalism and consumerism have had on our lives to the extent that bureaucracy follows us beyond death. It presents a whimsical and darkly comedic exploration of the bureaucracy of life and death through its imaginative portrayal of the afterlife and the intricate workings of the bureaucratic systems governing it. Beetlejuice satirizes the rigidity, inefficiency, and the absurdity of bureaucratic institutions. By juxtaposing the supernatural realm with the mundane aspects of bureaucracy, the film invites reflection on the complexities and frustrations of navigating the rules and regulations that govern our very existence. Barbara and Adam Maitland decide to spend their vacation decorating their country home in Connecticut. As they're driving home from a trip to town one day, Barbara swerves to avoid a dog and plunges into the river. After returning home, she and Adam notice they now lack reflections and they find a handbook for the recently deceased in their home. They begin to suspect that they didn't actually survive the car accident. When Adam attempts to leave the house, he ends up in a strange and otherworldly desert landscape populated by enormous sandworms. The encounter only lasts a few seconds for him, but after being rescued by Barbara, she claims that he was gone for over two hours. While this is going on, the house is sold, and the new owners, the Dietz family, arrive from New York City. Charles Dietz, a former real estate developer, his second wife Delia, a self-proclaimed sculptor, and his teenage strange and unusual daughter Lydia from his first marriage. The family transforms the house, removing its quaint New England charm and turning it into a work of postmodern art instead. Consulting the handbook for the recently deceased, the Maitlands travel to a waiting room populated by other distressed souls where they discover the afterlife is structured according to a complex bureaucracy involving vouchers and caseworkers. The Maitlands caseworker, Juno, informs them that they must remain in the house for the next 125 years, and if they want the Dietz family out of the house, it's up to the Maitlands themselves to scare them away. In Beetlejuice, death equals being stuck in the home where you last lived before your death, the middle-class hell of homeownership, the nightmarish psychogeography of private property. When the Maitlands complain about the Dietz family, Juno tells them, get them out yourselves, it's your house. Not only do you have to spiritually live in the house that you own past death, but homeownership and all of its responsibilities extend into the afterlife too, apparently. But was the life that the Maitlands living really living? 
Sure, they were alive, but they chose to spend their vacation time at home with plans to renovate the house while simultaneously building a miniature version of their town like the perfect consumerist dream. Beetlejuice opens with a long shot panning over a perfectly aesthetic small New England town. It's only at the end of that shot that we realized the whole town was fake. We were in Adam's model the whole time. The model town is a symbol of Adam's love for Winter River. He built a model of the town to capture it just the way it is. Contrast that to the Deeds family who see the town as a blank canvas for commercialization. From the moment they set foot in the door, they're both thinking about ways that they could make this town more profitable. The first experience that the Maitlands have with this eternal bourgeoisie is in the way that Burton depicts the afterlife as offices and waiting rooms with endless hallways leading to endless doors and endless departments. It comes with a handbook full of rules and procedures. In the offices and waiting room, you have to take a ticket and wait your turn. We hear about help vouchers and caseworkers in the afterlife, all the language of bureaucracy. Death looks an awful lot like the DMV. There is no relief in death from the mind-numbing minutia of a capitalistic system. The waiting room also has a turnstile, which reinforces the idea of the netherworld as a slow-moving bureaucracy. This idea is reinforced by touches like a digital turn counter that resets every 100 billion deceased or so, and the kind of magazines that you'd find splayed across a table in your average doctor's office. There is even a PA system that announces emergencies and the arrivals of large groups, like the victims of United Airlines Flight 409, so that every employee can fall in line and prepare their efficiency accordingly. In Beetlejuice, the afterlife is depicted as a bureaucratic system known as the Department of Recently Deceased, where the souls of the deceased must go through a series of boring bureaucratic procedures. This portrayal makes light of real-world bureaucracy by exaggerating its bureaucratic tendencies and introducing supernatural elements. The film presents a complex web of paperwork, waiting rooms, and labyrinthine processes that souls must navigate to ensure a smooth transition into their afterlife. This representation highlights the absurdity of bureaucracy as even in death, individuals are subjected to convoluted procedures and red tape. Furthermore, Beetlejuice emphasizes the inefficiency and lack of coherence often associated with these bureaucratic systems. The afterlife bureaucracy is portrayed as dysfunctional and disorganized with employees who are indifferent, unhelpful, and entirely incompetent. The characters, such as Juno the caseworker and the other civil servants, are depicted as apathetic or overwhelmed by their duties, further contributing to the chaotic nature of the system. This portrayal reflects the frustration experienced by individuals when dealing with real-life bureaucracies, where cumbersome processes and unresponsive officials can hinder progress and create unnecessary obstacles. But although Adam and Barbara remain invisible to Charles and Delia, Lydia can see the ghost couple and befriends them. Against Juno's advice, though, the Maitlands contact Beetlejuice, Juno's former assistant and now freelance bioexorcist, to scare away the Dietz family. But they only resort to these measures because, taking a cue from the most obscure bureaucratic offices, the Netherworld waiting room does not clearly advertise its existence. Adam only figures out how to access it on a footnote in the handbook for the recently deceased, which cryptically advises the reader to draw a door and knock three times in case of emergency only. And even then, the manual did not specify what kind of help would be on the other side. Understandably, Barbara suggested that they hire Beetlejuice, who was media savvy enough to advertise his services through flyers and TV ads. 
And even Beetlejuice the character himself is a mirror of American capitalism. He scrolls through the obituaries as if they were the business section, looking for new targets. He's got business cards and those TV advertisements we talked about. And even more, his commercial was based on Cal Worthington, a car dealer who amassed a personal fortune of over $100 million as the quintessential American capitalist. Moreover, Beetlejuice explores the consequences of bending or breaking the rules within a bureaucratic system. Beetlejuice himself, a mischievous and manipulative spirit who seeks to exploit the rules of the afterlife bureaucracy for his own personal gain. Through his antics, he represents the rebellious nature of individuals who try to subvert or exploit bureaucratic systems to their own advantage. However, the film also highlights the potential dangers and chaos that can arrive when rules and regulations are disregarded or manipulated, emphasizing the need for order and structure even within flawed bureaucratic systems. Death, for the Maitlands, appears to be the ultimate space for disempowerment. Their defenselessness in death against what at times appears to be the Dietz family's colonization of their home through a capitalist system reflects the potential defenselessness of small-town America against a behemoth, hegemonic, capitalistic ideal system. Additionally, Beetlejuice addresses the themes of conformity and the stifling nature of bureaucracy and contrived order. The film portrays the afterlife bureaucracy as promoting a homogenous and uniform existence where individuality and personal expression are incredibly discouraged. This critique reflects the rigid conformity often associated with bureaucratic institutions, which can limit creativity, individuality, and innovation. The character of Lydia, a living teenager who becomes entangled in the afterlife bureaucracy, serves as a symbol of rebellion against the stifling conformity, highlighting the need for individuality and freedom of speech. At first glance, it may seem that Beetlejuice as a film serves to answer the question, what happens when we die? It's not an uncommon or even new question to see pop culture grappling with. In fact, a lot of the movies that we talk about here at Clever Ghouls have touched on this topic specifically. And Beetlejuice certainly offers an answer to the age-old death question, but it also comments on so much more. Wealth and capitalism, the process of using human beings as a spectacle, and the often flimsy, dysfunctional nature of the traditional American family. Beetlejuice is such a memorable film because of the way it portrays the bureaucracy of life and death through Burton's signature exaggerated camp. And part of why it stayed so relevant over 30 years later is because it provides deep social commentary on a lot of issues under its thin, basically transparent veil. Beetlejuice uses its imaginative portrayal of the afterlife bureaucracy to satirize the rigidity, inefficiency, and absurdity of bureaucratic systems. Through its whimsical depiction of paperwork, waiting rooms, and disorganized employees, the film highlights the frustrations and complexities of navigating bureaucratic institutions. By exploring the consequences of breaking the rules and addressing themes of conformity and individuality, Beetlejuice invites reflection on the impact of bureaucracy on our day-to-day lives. <laughs>